Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with mechanical engineer Jim Heilman about the exciting advances going on in the plastics industry, the various types of molding equipment available to engineers, and whether one should really trust the movies for career advice. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 81, Plastics, April 30th, 2015. So, Brian, what's the best career advice you've ever gotten? Only work for cash. (laughs) (laughs) Under the table. And, yes. and who to, and who told you you should only work for cash? Not somebody in any way affiliated with the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is uh, that is pretty good advice, especially around tax stuff. Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, you know there was uh, there was a movie that uh, was fairly uh, popular back in the uh, late '60s, but I don't know as you guys have ever heard of it. Have you ever heard of the movie The Graduate? Oh, yes. Heard of it, haven't seen it. But I haven't seen many movies, so. Okay. All right. Well, it was, it was, uh, it came out in 1967, so it's been a long time ago. But the, uh, the movie is about Ben, who's a recent college graduate, and he's talented, but kind of aimless. And, uh, he, uh, he's unsure what he wants to do with his life, but, uh, he runs into, uh, his father's the wife of his father's business partner and has an affair with her. And after uh, embarking on this affair, he eventually falls in love with the, the woman's daughter. And so the entire movie is about uh, this character, Benjamin Braddock's uh, attempt to sort of find meaning in life. And he's played by Dustin Hoffman, a rather young Dustin Hoffman. Was that his first movie? I don't know whether it was his first movie or not. I doubt it, but maybe it was. I, certainly he was, uh, he was very popular in that movie. Uh, but there's a famous line uh, somewhere in the early parts of that movie when when uh, Benjamin is uh, at his parents' house. They're throwing a dinner party, and uh, he's being asked by a lot of uh, his parents' friends, you know, what is he going to do? What are, what are his plans? And there's a little scenario. We'll link to it in the show notes. There's a YouTube clip, but I'll, I'll give you the dialogue here. And so uh, one of the father's friends, Mr. McGuire, comes up and says, I want to say one word to you, just one word. And Benjamin played by Dustin Hoffman, says, yes, sir. Mr. McGuire, are you listening? Benjamin, yes, I am. Mr. McGuire, plastics. Benjamin, exactly how do you mean? Mr. McGuire, there's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? And so ever since, that's been a, a famous term. In fact, I think if you go look at the the uh, uh, the 100 most famous uh, bits of dialogue in movies, and I can't remember who put this on, uh, that line from Mr. McGuire, Plastics, that was somewhere in the top 100. It's, all, it's also in Civ, if there's any Civ fans out there. No? Yeah. Only me? Well, you have to explain that for the old guy. Oh, no, there's a wonderful game called Civilization. It's a uh, oh, yeah. history simulator, yeah. and as you acquire different technologies, there's usually a... Uh, at least in the newer versions, an audio bit, uh, sometimes a quote, historical quote, you know, a quote from antiquity. And then at one point you discover plastics and that's the quote they chose. <laughs> okay. 
I hate to think that nineteen. Yeah, I hate to think that nineteen sixty-seven is antiquity. Antiquity, but okay. It's also a relatively modern technology in the game, so it is. Generally, your pans are rolling across the rest of the world by the time you discover plastics. And it was my first year in college, so. <laughs> and and so there you hear. Thanks for reminding me of <laughs> antiquity in my first year in college. Man, how was Socrates as a professor? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so proud. <That> cold. <laughs> Oh man! (laughs) Throwing this interview, we got to scratch this and start over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, their listeners, you hear the voice of our guest for this episode. It's mechanical engineer Jim Heilman, uh, who previously joined us for our our episodes about recruiting and one about empathy. Now, there's a strange combination. (laughs) (laughs) This might have been before some of their time too, because it's before all our time. Uh, it, it was it was uh, it was before uh, uh, Chris left the show and before we had the uh, the combination of Adam, Brian, and Carmen to uh, to join as co-hosts. So, Jim, welcome back to the Engineering Commons. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> so you are now our first three-time guest. How does that feel? Thank you. Uh, it, it's a momentous occasion. There's no two ways about it. <laughs> you get all the way up to five punches on your card. You know, we pay you to come on for the sixth time instead of the other way around. Ooh, <laughs> I got something to look forward to. <laughs> uh, so, uh, one of the previous episodes that you were on, Jim, back in episode five, I mean, that's a ways back, you talked about recruiting. And so, uh, how's the recruiting business these days? Well, it's good. Uh, I, I recruit totally for the plastics industry, and uh, it's it really caught fire the end of last year and the start of this year. It's uh, slowed down somewhat lately, but uh, but still, it, it's still looking good. Well, fantastic. And, and so, how did you get into the plastics business? Well, that's kind of a long, long and sad story. But uh, as I moved into engineering management and uh, most of my work centered in the medical industry, it's for some odd reason, uh, the uh, packaging groups always fell under me. Uh, I don't know why. And, uh, of course, plastics, medical are uh, very closely linked. Right. Most most of our packaging was plastic, so I had to learn on the job, so to speak. Yeah. Now, were you, was your background packaging, or or how was it that you were being put in charge of the packaging departments? Uh, for no particular reason that I know <laughs> of, other than nobody else wanted to do it. Uh, in one company, it, it had been part of uh, marketing, and that wasn't working. So somebody got the bright idea at Abbott that. Uh, the packaging should fall under engineering, and since uh, I guess they didn't think I had enough to do, they gave me packaging. So that's kind of how that worked. Right, and and so who who were you working for at the time? You've got you got your first uh, uh, job where you had to get involved in plastics. Uh, the first real serious one was uh, when I was working for uh, the Ross Ross Laboratories Division of Abbott Laboratories. Mm, okay. Which which Ross no longer exists, but uh, it's now I believe Abbott Nutritionals, and that was when I 
really got heavily uh, involved in plastics. Okay. Any, any particular product or, or uh, process? Oh, a lot of different products. Uh, we gave away uh, our uh, – Ross was a manufacturer of uh, nutritionals for infants, and we had a lot of different uh, things we gave away to the hospitals that they in turn gave to mothers who were leaving the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of packaging involved in that. Oh, okay. So, so if, uh, if our listeners haven't figured out, uh, our subject for this evening is to talk about plastics. And, uh, it's one of those areas that sometimes I think people think is kind of a niche, uh, market and a niche industry, but it's, it's fairly big. Uh, Jim, can you give us an idea of how big the plastics industry is these days? Yeah, plastics is actually the fourth largest industry in the United States. Um, it's it's kind of moves lock and step with uh, the automotive industry, so a lot of people don't separate the two. But but there are very few automotive manufacturers that actually do their own plastics manufacturing. They depend on tier one and tier two plastics manufacturers. So it's uh, it's it's very much a standalone uh, industry, and a lot of that, and and another area that gets uh, a lot of heavy use is the medical industry uses a lot of plastics, not just in packaging, but uh, ob- but for obvious reasons, a lot of the products are plastics. So, has uh, plastics always been an outsourced component for the automotive industry, or is that uh, new? Now, it started as part of the automotive industry uh, and then j- just gradually got spun off. I, I'm, I'm not sure why that happened for sure, but uh, but it, as time went on, more and more of the uh, plastics, a lot of the plastics companies started in the 50s and 60s. And the automotive industry uh, quit trying to compete Partially, I think, because the overhead associated with the automotive industry was so much greater than the plastics industry. Initially, the plastics industry wasn't unionized, and it's still, for a large part, not unionized. So uh, it was a lot cheaper to to outsource the, the plastics than uh, plastics manufacturing. Because in the automotive industry, a lot of the other materials manufacturing is still in-house, if I'm... Uh, yes, very true, especially the metal yeah. stamping and all that, yeah. So, uh, Jim, what exactly yes. are plastics? Well, plastics, oh boy, that that is a good question. Uh, it's Plastics and, poly- and the term polymers are used almost interchangeably. And polymers, for the most part, uh, plastics covers polymers and vice versa. There are some plastics that are not polymers, but I, I really don't want to get into that. There, there might be some uh, chemical engineers out there that might be excited to, to hear me talk about that, but I don't think anybody else <laughs> probably is. We think the chemical engineering audience is terribly underserved thus far. <laughs> probably right yeah i see in our notes we have that uh polymers can be both natural and synthetic um are there any naturally occurring plastics or is that another distinction between the two 
Uh, that would be another distinction, but most of them are synthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, you know, based, they're oil, they're oil based. Is that crude uh, oil based? LPG, yeah, crude oil, LPG, uh, natural gas. Uh, it, can, it can be uh, derived from quite a few things. The, the original Bakelite was uh, hmm, kind of a combination of both, both natural and synthetic. So yeah, I think I've heard of Bakelite. Was it used in uh, cheap radios back in the day? Oh yeah, it was used for a lot of things until probably the 30s or 40s. Mm. Awful lot of things: hairbrushes, uh, turtle shell, anything that had the term turtle shell back then was usually bakelite. Gotcha. Even I've even I've even seen banjos with bakelite on them. <laughs> uh, on them so. Is it just because it's that versatile, or was it cheap? Well, it. You could do a lot of things with it. You couldn't do with uh, wood or metal. Mm-hmm. It, it was you could you could get some really cool effects with it. So I think it was as much of anything. It was a new marketing tool. And you know how those marketing people oh, love yeah. anything it's new. A fe- it's a feature. <laughs> so um, I guess for those of our listeners who are not materials guys, what is Bakelite? I was afraid somebody would ask that, and I'm not even <laughs> sure myself to this day. I, I I really don't know. I know it was accidentally created in the lab, and then uh, it went from there, but I really don't know what, what all went into Bakelite. I, I've come along a lot later than that, and I've never really studied. Seems like some of the great things are that. made by accident. Bakelite, WD-40. Oh, yeah. LSD. Exactly. <laughs> And and basically vulcanized rubber. So yeah. yeah. Uh, is bakelite still used, or has uh, it fallen? No, bakelite's bakelite's kind of disappeared. It's not. Uh, it, it's bakelite in the plastic world would be known as a thermoset. Once you do something with it, it's set, and it cracks. It's not very uh, flexible. And at the same time, it's not hard enough to to uh, withstand a whole lot of force or pressure. Most of those radios you were talking about broke mm-hmm. uh, fairly quickly. It didn't take much to break yeah. those. In fact, if you can you can find one, uh, they're they're worth quite a bit of money if you can find one in good condition, just because there's so few left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember now. It was right when uh, the transistors started getting big, and instead of being yeah, yep. like uh, a nice piece of furniture, like the old tube radios. They they made them out of the cheap stuff, so people would buy the tube radios instead. Yeah, right. That's why we don't right. use transistors today. Yep. Yep. Good point. So, Jim, where did when did the uh, conversion to so many plastics start to take place? I know it was sometime after World World War II, and I am old enough to remember that uh, you know you used to buy oil cans. In the uh, you know the cans were sort of had the cardboard sides and the metal tops. They didn't come in the plastic jugs. Uh, and yeah, so, when did when did the conversion to everything plastic start to happen? It really started in the early fifties, um, and, and it was primarily injection molding. Again, for the they started realizing there was a place for it in the uh, automotive industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like dashboards uh, that they could make relatively inexpensive 
that way doors door handle uh, door handles uh, some of the first one were door handles with a kind of a chrome coating on the plastic sure. um and, and it it just it, it just grew over time they found more they wanted to get more and more weight out of cars and as they did that they started going uh, more and more to plastics okay so this is a relatively, I mean, you compare it to, say, mechanical engineering, the parts of mechanical engineering like thermodynamics, which have been developed since the 18th century. Uh, plastics is a relatively new engineering science. Uh, relatively new, and it continues to grow as a science. There's a lot of, uh, a lot putting into the uh, the polymer resins uh, development even now. Uh, in fact, quite a few of the placements we've done in the last few years have been specifically for uh, polymer R&D, both thermosets and uh, thermoplastics. In fact, thermosets have gotten very popular because they can be very hard and at the same time take a lot of heat. And you could even use them for things like valve covers. In fact, probably if you've got a Cadillac or any number of cars now, the the valve valve covers are uh, now plastic so. wow and, and so t- can you remind us again what the difference is but you mentioned a thermoset is that how's that different from a thermoplastic and you mentioned the word resin so how does resin fit into the world of plastics well basically resin if you uh, probably the easiest way to think of a resin is a pellet that's that's contains all the polymer that uh, will be melted down and turned into plastic okay um thermosets are if you think of it, they're they're hard usually and they cannot be once they're molded they can't be uh, broken down or changed they are set that's why we call them thermosets and the advantages the biggest advantage of them again is just their their hardness and their ability to stand up to more heat <laughs> so this is a question from left field and we can you know come back to it later if we're going to go off on a tangent but is this why when uh you look at different plastic things you buy at the around the house it'll have the different number to tell you if it's recyclable uh that's a little different but but you're kind of right you you cannot recycle number one thermosets Mm -hmm. so if you've got a thermoset plastic you pretty much write it off as far as recycling thermoplastic polymers are soft uh softer they can be even nylons, which uh, are pretty tough, are ground up now into uh, uh, res into pellets, and then used for making carpet. Uh, even if they are carpet, they're reused again to go into cars to do sound deadening and things like that. And uh, your pet uh, bottles that you drink uh, all of your uh, pop from and all that and water. Those those can be easily recycled too. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's a ton of research going into trying to recycle even more of it too, right? Oh, constantly, yeah, and, and that's another area we've placed a lot of people in. I've been working with a lot of companies very closely with, and even doing a little bit of consulting with them because it's still a that's still very much an evolving field. Recycling plastics. Oh yeah. yeah big it's it's just evolving all the time i I guess that makes sense up until i guess not long ago we didn't really care what happened to them no 
and even and and they're still trying to do a good job or trying to uh recycle plastic bags uh you know like you get in walmart or yeah. grocery stores california california's banned them yeah the ones i get now actually say you can recycle them yeah but they still, most of the recyclers don't like them because they get into their conveyors and they clog things up and they're very, very hard for them to handle. Mm. So they're looking for different ways of, uh, they can, re- they can in theory recycle them. It's just not very cost effective to be real honest. Process issue. They're trying. Yeah. Engineering issue. Mm-hmm. Good thing for engineers to work Someone, on. Someone's employed <laughs> and earning a paycheck. Yep. That's probably why it's taking so long. They weren't, they're milking it. <laughs> they figured it out like months ago. <laughs> it's kind of like the old story uh, that uh, they can make oil that'll last forever, but uh, we don't make it because they want to keep selling oil yeah. for cars. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway. So, so speaking of oil, uh, you mentioned earlier, Jim, that, that, uh, plastics are derived from either crude oil or natural gas, and the price in recent years of both crude oil and natural gas has gone down. So, what has that done for the plastics industry? Does it make uh, does it make it more attractive, or uh, does it get used? Like, what, what's the effect on the industry? Well, it definitely makes it more attractive, and it also uh, plastic manufacturers were really at one point being horribly squeezed by the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were going out of business because they just, they had no margins. If they made a mistake in their production, they were out of business. Right. Um, and right now they can make a, make a pretty good living, uh, molding plastics for the automotive industry because of the lower oil prices. I even saw, read an article, wasn't too long ago that the, uh, President or actually CEO of Chrysler was very upset because his plastic uh, manufacturing companies he thought were was were making too much money, and he should have a bigger cut of that money. <laughs> even even though Chrysler was making record profits at the time, so right. Um, so you know, eh, a little little bit of yin and yang there, but that's. But definitely the lower oil prices help the tier one, tier two automotive suppliers and, right. and, and tend to help everybody to some extent because we all uh, profit from it. Yeah. Well, that sort of falls under the uh, the golden rule, right? He who has the gold makes the rules. Definitely. <laughs> yep. So uh, earlier you mentioned the uh, the process of injection molding. Are there are there other types of molding methods? How are how are, how are plastics normally formed? Well, there's <laughs> again there's there's a million ways to skin the uh, the cat. Uh, in injection molding, you have things you have horizontal molding, vertical molding. Uh, you but uh, basically molding is you inject hot molten plastics into a mold okay. and. Uh, and then you cool the mold, and after the plastic set, you open the mold up, take the plastics out, if it happens to have a sprue in it. Okay. Uh, What's a sprue? A sprue would be a, uh, what do you think? Like a runner between the pieces? A runner, yeah. yeah. In the old days, you, every press, you had to open the press up and cut the runners off. There's okay. usually a guy standing there, a woman with a, a pair of pliers or snips, 
and now it's not done very much anymore. Most most molds uh, they have heated cores and they don't uh, they don't require that, so they just go ahead and they can eject directly. And usually the products taken almost everything's now taken out by a robot. And if there is any uh, a work done, it's usually done by a CNC five five axis CNC robot. Uh, hmm. doing that so are the molds primarily made out of uh aluminum or most are made out of stainless steel but a lot it's short what they call mud mud molds or short run molds are are often made out of aluminum but uh but but for the most part stainless steel or steel and and, and what kind of uh life do you get out of a standard mold uh, it's all over the place, depending oh, on how sure, many yeah. shots you're going to run and what your tonnage of press is. It's it, it, it's all over. Uh, that that one's impossible, really, to to comment on. Yeah, and from you know, if I've learned one thing from Shark Tank, it's anyone who's doing a plastic molded product of some kind. There's always huge setup costs associated with this, and that's. That's well, usually a big constraint on their business. Is that not true? That's true. There are ways to get around that, though. There's uh, the thermoforming, which is another method of basically you take a sheet of plastic, heat it, pull a vacuum on it uh, over a, uh, it can be even a wood mold, mm-hmm. and thermoforming can be much, much cheaper. Uh, thermoforming can give you the added benefit of uh, of doing a, uh, just making a limited number of, of products, say a thousand, for marketing test uh, or focus group testing, before you ever invest money in in injection molds. So, and, and the bigger the mold, if you're let's say molding a body for a Corvette, that mold's going to cost you millions of dollars. And if you're making a few uh, parts for uh, the medical industry, a few little test parts. That one, that might only cost you fifty thousand, but uh, no, only fifty thousand. So, <laughs> yeah, only fifty thousand. But for thermoforming, you can a lot of times you can make those same parts for uh, a thousand or two thousand or two or three thousand uh, dollars if you've got the uh, the CNC uh, tooling to uh, to make your mold. Uh, it- it's fairly easy. Is there a big de- uh, difference in the density of the part? Uh, they're usually not. Uh, you can, uh, unless you go real thick, you can uh, do pretty well with your thermoforming. Um, actually, uh, boats, a lot of boats now are thermoformed for uh, their solid plastic. Uh, the, the boats used, <laughs> strangely enough, in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam were thermoformed boats. They were thermo. They were made by thermoforming. They were light and light and pretty tough at the same time. So, and another big method of molding, uh, right up there with injection molding, is yeah, Jim, blo- can, yeah. can I jump in real quick? Sure. So one one of the things that I wanted to know was I when I people talk about injection molding machines, they often talk about tonnage, and why did they have to worry about tonnage on an injection molding machine? Because that. Well, there's two things that define what you're doing on injection molding. It's pounds, uh, 
of plastic that you're injecting injection molding into the uh, at the time, mm-hmm. but uh, tonnage where tonnage comes in is clamping pressure on the mold. Molds are always split. They're almost, and there's exceptions to this too, obviously. But but for the most part, they're in two parts, right. and you bring the mold together to uh, to press uh, the part to to form the mold form the part uh, through the injection molding press, and that's where you get tonnage. That's right. where the tonnage calculation comes. Okay. So if you look at an injection molded part, oftentimes, if you look close, you can find the little line that is the split line where the two pieces of the mold stuck together. Yeah. Although they're getting pretty good at uh, getting rid of that now. But uh, okay. yeah, uh, you can. Is that through better molds or sanding? Uh, better molds. Better molds. Uh, very, very good polishing techniques. And also heated uh, the the way they the cavities are are built so that the uh, you can move the uh, I don't want to say so plastic through it and keep it warm until it actually gets into the uh, area where you want to get it to do the molding and cooling because you have to you get the plastic in there and you have to cool it very fast so your your rate of cooling has a big effect on that. Uh, that, that that issue you're talking about where you get parting lines. If you control your cooling better, you don't get as much of a parting line. Gotcha. It, it gets uh, there. There's there's a there is a lot of science and there's a lot of art in injection molding. Although no one wants to hear that, especially <laughs> engineers. But <laughs> but but there is it's all a, science. We have an awful lot of science in it. Right now, now the other thing I remember is that you also, in addition to the split line, you also used to be able to find the little. Uh, round in, uh, depression impression from the inject, ejection pin that was spitting the part out yep. of the mold. Is, That's the, true. is that still evident or are the new methods have re, they, have they removed that as well? The new methods have almost gotten eliminated those also. The new okay. molds. Yeah. Yeah. They've gotten uh, very good at, very good at making molds. Okay. You know? And, but one thing you have to be very careful about on mold making I know because I, I, strangely enough, ended up designing some of these for for a process when I was at 3M. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mold surface will crack if you really don't get your metallurgic just perfect. It'll, it'll crack because of the continuous heating and cooling. So you get some real, very interesting heat mass transfer in molds. Uh, okay. it, 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 the math can get horrendous. And, and we out. talked about the we talked about some of the cost of these molds. Uh, my recollection is that that uh, sort of master mold makers make a awful lot of money. Used to be a lot more than they do now, but I'm usually placing those guys at about a sixty to eighty thousand dollar placement. Just place place somebody mm-hmm. this week, uh, and I think let's see, he's making about seventy two, if I remember right. Okay. So, and that's kind of a kind of a going rate. At one time, they were even higher. It was almost impossible to hire them. But right. with but so many molds are now being made in China that it has reduced the cost. But then again, there's been a problem with a lot of the Chinese made molds, and that they come over and they get that stress cracking I was talking about, mm-hmm. and so people are afraid, a little bit afraid of having molds made in China, and it's gotten. More and more molds are being made in the U.S. again. 
So is the uh, sort of the art of mold making, is that sort of being transferred over to the CAD systems? I mean, I know people are putting, you know, all, all that kind of design work is going on to a CAD system these days. Are they able to do a pretty good job of spitting out something that's close to the final mold? Yeah, mold, mold flow, uh, definitely. And uh, some of the, and, and some of the, uh, well, SolidWorks is used an uh, awful lot for mold making now, mold okay. design. So, yeah, very common. And okay. the, probably the second biggest method of making, making any plastic molded project, product is blow molding, which again, think of, uh, Pepsi bottles, Coke bottles, uh, PET bottles, two-liter bottles, uh, water, water bottles. Uh, set up a lot, set up a lot of those in Iraq to make uh, to make water bottles for the military. It was cheaper <laughs> actually in Iraq to drill holes in the ground, bring up water, and fill the bottles than to spend uh, thousands of dollars trying to bring convoys of uh, trucks full of water across the desert where they were being shot at with R- RPGs and things like that. Right. Well, although I'm sure the truck drivers, if they survived, liked the money because it was very good. <laughs> That's my new discovery uh, but, show. Yeah. So uh, can you explain exactly the process of blow molding? What, you know, we understand the tight, you know, the milk cartons and that kind of stuff or milk bottles are blow molded, but, but how does that happen? Well, there, there's a lot of different methods to blow molding, unfortunately, and I, I won't go into all of them. The two biggest are extrusion blow molding and injection blow molding. With injection blow molding, you make a, what's called a parison, which is the basic shape of the bottle or mm-hmm. part, or whatever it is, and then you put it in a mold, a blow mold, heat it up again, stick a tube in it, and then blow, fill it full of air, and it takes the shape of uh, whatever it is uh, that, that, that your mold is designed to make. So this is sort of like blowing up a balloon inside a mold, and then once it's blown up, it kind of sticks to the edge of the mold? Basically, that's what it is. That's all it is. And you can do it, another way to do it, you can actually extru- go ahead and straightly, straight extrude the mold into the uh, into it and uh, let it, um, and then go ahead and mold it. Although it's a, a multi-step process, which has some technical issues that make it uh, a little harder. Uh, makes makes the processing a little harder in some ways, but in some ways cheaper. So mm-hmm. if you've got the skill set and the right equipment, you can do it very well. In fact, I just read the other day that a company has finally come out with the ability to do blow molding and in, and use the water that you're going to fill the water bottle with to actually blow the uh, blow the bottle up in the mold. Mm-hmm. So that should be a huge step forward. I think boy uh, machines, and I think they're located in Germany, have just come out with that. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Interesting. And extrusion molding is another method. I kind of touched on it here. Extrusion molding gets a lot of use in a lot of different areas, especially if you think of uh, making wire for uh, 
pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. You and you have to have it encased in plastic or rubber. Extrusion mold is one of the best ways to go. Uh, and it, one of the nice things that, or one of the things that have been developed, I worked with extrusion molding at Belden Wire and Cable, and we started working with uh, putting nitrogen bubbles in the plastic, which greatly reduced the uh, weight of the plastic, but had even a better, a greater effect, and it provided a, a whole lot more resistance to uh, arcing over or or the uh, gave it a lot more resistance to electrical field. So, so that's another and extrusion molding you uh, very often used to make automotive parts. Again, seals, uh, mm-hmm. most door seals, window seals are made from extrusion molding. It's usually referred to as profile extrusion. Yet okay. another subset. All of these have. Probably a hundred subsets that I'm okay. talking about. So, so, I'm just, so this is this is kind of like the Play-Doh machine. The, you know, you stuck the Play-Doh in, and you've got the little profile, and you take the lever down, and it would extrude out of shape. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but you simplify it to toys. I can understand it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And and then there's rotational molding, which is used usually to make. And there's several ways of doing rotational molding. There's direct fire, where where you're making water tanks and you're you're, you're inserting your spring. In effect, you're spraying the plastic inside a mold that's being turned. It's nothing but a big tube that's being turned and heated by flame, direct flame, and then the plastic sticking to the outside until you build up the uh, right uh, thickness, the proper thickness. And then there are other machines that take it and actually shake the plastic in a, and it's in a powder form when it's put in these parts. Think of these big rubber balls you can buy at Walmart for your kids. They're actually, it looks like a octopus shaking, um, shaking, uh, these big balls. And that's how they're made. So there's a lot of different ways to do rotational molding. And you mentioned a few minutes ago, one thing I don't want to, pass up uh with injection molding and thermoforming 3d mold, 3d uh, 3d machines or 3d printers? machines are becoming a an increasingly cheap way of making parts to to take to focus groups or marketing groups or whatever and also for some testing before investing in injection molding they're not replacing uh injection molding because it's just uh, the speed's so slow that it's uh, you're not going to compete against injection molders or thermoforming or things like that. But it's sure a good way to uh, test an idea or a concept. Sure. And uh, and as and too as injection molding has gone into uh, injection molding metals now more and more, they've uh, kind of gotten a figured out how not to set their molding machines on fire when they injection mold <laughs> metals, um, as well as plastics. And the same thing is starting to happen with 3D molding machines, so uh, or 3D machines. So it's that's that that's been a, a very good uh a good a good adjuncts to to the various molding types of molding. Right. So, so with the uh, the metal printing, are they actually are they melting the metal and then printing it? Is that how it's going? Um, 
that's one way to think about it. Yeah, they're they're bringing it in, in in a liquid, more of a liquid form. I have heard some about powder and some other methods, but uh, the the biggest one still, I think, uh, a melted metal. Yeah. Do you have any idea what kind of strength the part has after you're done with that? No, I really haven't learned too much about, or I haven't okay. gotten very involved in the metal uh, 3D printing. Uh, I've stuck mostly with the plastic 3D printing. And I can tell you, the well, parts aren't, some parts I've seen uh, heads for cars. Dodge, for one, I happen to, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but I happen to know that Dodge has made, uh, heads for cars out of plastic and put them in cars and tested the design before making making them out of metal. And they've been able to get enough runs that they can they can do that. And you people make guns now which can shoot one or two bullets before the gun melts using three right. three D printers. So a lot of things a lot of things being done with three D printers. It'll be a long time I think before that before they uh, impact heavily on the plastic molding but uh but there's definitely a place for it sure so as a uh a plastic engineer you know is is the field small enough where you kind of know about all these methods you're talking about or do people typically specialize oh definitely definitely specialize uh any one of those you can spend your lifetime learning uh <laughs> just keep learning uh they're they're just so they're just, they're just so huge that uh i i companies won't hire say a blow molding process engineer for their injection molding mm-hmm. uh a ro- they they won't hire an injection molding guy for a rotational molding company uh very very uh, not not just protective but uh but it's just so skill specific that they just uh, really, really hunker down. Gotcha. So it's very, very difficult to move across there. Seems like it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a generalist. I can probably move across most of those earlier, easier than most people can. But, uh, but when you really have to learn the processes and apply it, it's just very skill specific. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what's the, uh, I guess since it's very niche and, you know, you focus a lot. Could you give us like a, a, I guess, a day in your life since you're a generalist? Like what sort of things go into being a petroleum or um, plastics engineer? Well, actually, I I am a recruiter. So when I say I'm kind of a generalist, I've also been in most of these. I've seen most of these operations and actually worked on some things for for different companies. I've even, I've worked on moles. Uh, I've worked in blow molding, uh, little ex- extrusion quite a bit at Belden, rotational molding, and uh, a lot of thermal forming because a lot of the packaging uh, that you see is thermal formed. Uh, most of, it, as a matter of fact, because that's one of the that's the cheap, pretty much the cheapest method of making it. But uh, but I, where I spend my time is placing uh, people with the uh, the skills, which is my biggest advantage i can actually talk to the company and when they they're asking for something and very often they really don't know what they want i can help them with that so i i kind of provide in addition to just i'm not just a headhunter i'm a consultant of sorts 
because I understand the process. I have a lot of recruiters call me because they they know that uh, I'm a niche player in the pack in the plastics recruiting industry and when they get a job order they want to know hey what what am i looking for here so then i have to try to educate them a little bit very cool so it seems like every day is a different challenge then oh it truly is truly is i learn a lot every day because i'm i constantly come up with stuff that or i have companies contact me uh to find somebody for something i've just totally not seen before where, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's amazing. Sounds like a pretty good problem to have. Well, it is. Yeah, I like, what I like to say is I, I when uh, kind of like the the uh, city or town doctor, you know, if uh, somebody gets hit with a spear, you want to be known as the best spear remover in town. That's <laughs> kind of the way I am with recruiting. I, I want to be known as the best uh, plastics recruiter in town. So, Jim, one question we had prior to uh, uh, recording tonight was, at what level does composites actually work its way into the plastics? Uh, very directly. Uh, it's it, Usually, it's uh, composites are done with an injection molding method of, of, of sorts. It can be, and one thing I didn't put on here, and I should have, since you've asked that question, compression molding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're laying down the plastic, then putting in fiberglass or whatever it is your composite is, or uh, or carbon uh, fibers, very uh, generally carbon fibers now. In in effect, then you're pressing them together. Is that the vacuum bagging technology? No, it's pretty much compression technology. Uh, you you go with heat, but you're you're forcing it very much like you'd. I kind of think of it as uh, making a part in a, in a steel part in a press, oh, somewhat okay. somewhat a similar type uh, type way of doing it. it. Gets a little more complicated than that. I'm over. I'm way oversimplifying, and I'm not going to claim to be a, a, a expert in that area. It's not one that I've dealt a lo- awful lot in yet. But but I have dealt in it some. Uh, Back in the days when I worked with Union Carbide, so, but Union Carbide is no more, so we won't talk <laughs> about that. It's Dow Chemical now, right? Yeah. So, Jim, with this multitude of manufacturing processes and uh, you know people specializing for years and years, if you're a uh, you know a run-of-the-mill design engineer. You've got a great uh, a great concept, or your boss says, "Hey, go find out about making this part in plastic." Uh, where do you turn for information? I mean, uh, you know, picking up a textbook is one way to go, but that seems like a slow way to find out what the most cost efficient, you know, method of making a certain uh, prototype part might be. Yeah, there there is. I, it, I actually, I've got a couple on my shelf that I use. Uh, <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I should have had them out. But uh, there are a couple of very good textbooks on it. But again, like you said, it can't cover everything. And uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you give us the uh, later on, if you give us the names of the textbooks, I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, I'll give that to you because we should. There's one okay. very, very good one that I use a lot, okay. uh, especially when I, I'm, I'm kind of stumped on something. So I, I, I use those as a reference. I've got two or three, and so I'll give them to you. Uh, but uh, 
LinkedIn has become a, a very good source uh people talking about i i read a lot of the the linkedin uh uh conversations back and forth because i learn from them uh, i see things in there I've, I've never seen before and ideas and the nice thing about linkedin is stuff comes in from all over the world india china america germany you know and, and they're working back and forth so something that's uh, developed in 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 the U.S. or in China or Germany, uh, can be uh, disseminated uh, via LinkedIn. It, it's become a very good source for that. Hmm. And of course, uh, another method is just going to the, some of the colleges uh, that uh, specialize in plastics. Uh, the, the, they, you know, have some very, very good professors uh, that have a lot of experience in it. And have a little, and somewhat of a wide range of experience, but they uh, they're they're very good also for uh, for a resource. I know a lot of companies do that. Right. So, well, so since you mentioned that, let's we'll move qu- uh, for a little bit down a little further down our list. Uh, we were going to talk about some of the good schools for learning about plastics. What what uh, what colleges uh, have good programs? Well, there's the, the the number one I would say is Lowell University. At the, it's uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts, part of the University of Massachusetts system, is mm-hmm. probably the most renowned, maybe most renowned, renowned in the world. Uh, a lot of a lot of people come here from all over the world to study at Lowell. Um, a lot of people from India, China, everywhere. So right. it's very well regarded. Ferris State uh, is another very good school. Ferris State's biggest advantage, uh, not only in is plastics, but they they have a very active rubber program, which few very few schools do. But they're hmm. very good at it. Uh, Pittsburgh State's a good school, uh, very good school for that uh and that's a pittsburgh not located in pennsylvania but kansas but kansas you're right okay very good yeah make sure you know where your dorm is before you drive there yeah (laughs) (laughs) definitely yeah the pittsburgh state would interestingly enough has no h at the end of pittsburgh so (laughs) hence you could tell the difference penn state's got a very good school uh also they're they're very good and there's a couple out west which kind of uh I can never remember. It's there's a school in Colorado. I don't know if it's Southeast Colorado State or, but a, but a college you don't hear about all the time. But they've developed a very good program. Ball State in Muncie is trying to get. They've got some molding machines, and they're teaching technicians and engineers, and they've got. Uh, they're trying to get traction now. There's a school up here in Minnesota. Uh, Hennepin Technical College, which is very good if you want to just, you know, learn how to run machines, how to, how to become a technician, uh, a very good technician. And technicians don't, don't do bad. It, uh, they do, process technicians can do very well. They're, they can easily, uh, get 50, 60, $70,000 as a process technician. In fact, I'm looking for one now for Illinois, um, uh, and for a company in Illinois that's uh, close to Mundelein, Illinois, they're willing to pay seventy or eighty thousand dollars for a lead process technician without a degree. Wow! So, hmm. And I can't—I I, 
uh, I'm struggling to find that person. I'd love to find him. It's good money. Yeah, well, uh, if any listeners are looking for a career change, send all resumes yes. this way. Yeah, I'll be happy to see them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's a, but the thing about all these schools, they give you a chance to actually run a molding machine, show you how to do um, decoupled molding. Uh, there's some also some very good uh, uh, companies in the United States that, you know, go from, uh, they'll, they'll give you a, a week of training on uh, molding machines. Uh, they pick a location in Chicago or something, set their machines up and uh, do do training also. So you can get a lot of on-the-job training. And a lot of companies right. do that. They they spend money to improve it, they, especially in, like in the areas of scientific molding, gas assist molding, which is kind of what I was talking about on the extrusion thing with our uh, wiring at Belden. That's what would mm-hmm. call, be called gas gas assist. Decoupled molding. Uh, that sounds kind of weird, but uh, you start out and you let things kind of run together and then smash them. Works very well for some things. <laughs> okay. For lack of a <laughs> lack of a better way to put it, but uh, yeah, they're very uh, very good. So there, there's a lot of different ways to learn, but the biggest thing is one of the biggest is you really you, you can't just do it with math. You you have to have a, a you have to develop a feel for it, and the only way you can really do that's being out there with the machines. Okay. So, okay. so if you if you decide to go to one of these schools, you want to become a plastics engineer. You know, you graduate, you've got your degree. What kind of careers do it, you know are available to an engineer in the plastics field? Well, that's almost infinite. Uh, you can go out and design plastic molding machines, uh, presses, injection molding presses. You can design the molds. Uh, you can become a process engineer and develop the processes that are needed. Manufacturing engineer, which is very similar. One big area that there's a huge need for, and I place quite a few of them and make a lot of money at, and I really love my project engineers. Because okay. project engineers have to be a little bit of a generalist, but still very good at almost every area. They have to be able to sit down with uh, the the person that's got an idea, design the product, help them design the product for manufacturability. Then they've got to get the molds designed or however you want to test it. Uh, then you've got to take the molds, get it into manufacturing, and develop the processes. On and on and on it goes. And you've got to completely handle the whole project from start to finish. We call them great cradle-to-grave project engineers. Okay. And there is a huge area. And, and those those people generally run into the six figures. Usually most companies want degrees, but uh, sometimes you don't have to have a degree. Yeah. And you can make a very good living at it. And there are companies in China that will pay a small fortune for you. They'll bring you over and pay you a quarter of a million dollars a year, put you up in a uh, luxury apartment with servants and everything else to get you there. So, All you got to do is learn about plastics? <laughs> yep. 
That's all you got to do. You, but you got to know a lot when you go over there. Because if you, 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 screw, up, you screw up, you may never uh, make it back to the United States again. They, you may get lost somewhere in China, and they never find you. But No, I watched you Inception. Know. You can make it back. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd probably take care of my, my wife before I went into the dream world, but other than that, yeah, I'd follow those steps. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be that way for some a lot of industries. I can remember can making was the same way. So I, I had a big background in can making, so. Okay. So we mentioned earlier uh, 3D printing and that's sort of uh, becoming more affordable and the price is dropping and that sort of thing. Are are you, we seeing the same sort of uh, downward uh, price pressure on the plastics industry? Is it getting is it getting cheaper to make plastics despite these high mold costs? Um, oh, that's a hard one. In a way, no. It's it's not getting a whole lot cheaper because more and more. Is- uh, more is being, being demanded from plastics. Okay. Uh, more strength, more, more flexibility, more heat resistance uh, all the time. I mean, plastics in a lot of areas are complete competing with metals and, and the same, uh, and they're, and they're trying to hold down, uh, weight at the same time. And that's, that's doing a lot of driving. So there's a lot of, awful lot of science and, and the presses have gotten just incredible. They get incredibly expensive because there are so much in the early days of presses. Basically, all you had was, if you can imagine this, a tube with uh, heaters, uh, usually electric heaters, clamped on the outside, heating the plastic. Excuse me, heating the plastic, and a big screw on the inside, turning the plastic and mixing it. And then the mm-hmm. plastic coming out of the end. Well, right. that isn't the case anymore. Now the electronics and the controls and and the heat controls and everything are just incredibly complex, and it's uh, it's not cheap. And you have used to be the the presses that the injection molds were closed using hydraulics, but now so many of them are using. Uh, uh, electric presses because they're they're better to control. You get better control. Get rid of a lot of the problems you were talking about earlier, earlier, Jeff, with marks and stuff. Right, but but with electric presses, how are they generating these huge forces? Is it is it magnetic field? Is it uh, what are they? How are they generating that kind of force? I thought hydraulics would be required. No, it's gotten very interesting. Uh, a lot of almost screws kind of like a, a very fast screw uh okay. turning uh being turned uh oh so the, using mechanical advantage right right okay. they still use it but uh but at the same time they get a lot better control using the uh, the electric so uh, there's a lot of and there's several different ways of doing it that's one i and i i haven't seen them all companies like toyo Toyo specializes in in uh, electric uh, presses. That's their okay. whole bailiwick. And if you want to go in the business, I, I happen to know that they'll uh, they'll even fund you. They'll sell you a press on uh, 
and advance <laughs> you the money to do it. So, right. I talked to him one time about it, and I decided, nah, too much work. <laughs> but anyway. So, but I mean, you raise a good point. Uh, you've talked about the, the there's some money to be made if you know the plastics industry, but if you didn't happen to go to one of these plastic colleges or colleges that have majors in the field of plastics, how do you get yourself transferred into the plastics industry? I'd say probably the only way you can actually do it is you find someone, uh, you, you network. Recruiters you can rarely do that, uh, place somebody in the plastics industry that doesn't have experience because they don't want to pay our exorbitant fees, which I don't think, I don't think are exorbitant because I know what we go through to place somebody, but a lot of people think they are. Um, but, uh, so really a, a lot of them just start, a lot of them come from, have come from, uh, working in, in dad's plastic shop back in the early days and learned it on the way up or, uh, or they've gone to a, uh, two year college and learned how to make molds. And then that leads to something else, to something else. But basically you have to start somewhere with some knowledge and kind of work your way up mm-hmm. or find somebody that uh, will mentor you. Uh, some, you, you know, somebody at church and, you know, and you guys like each other and he says, okay, come over to my plant and uh, we'll, we'll, you know, see if you have an interest in this and you, you can learn it type of thing. And, and so what's the minimum amount of experience most companies are looking for? You know, the, the typical is everybody wants three to five years. It's right now. It's pretty much five years as a minimum. Okay. And uh, it's very very skill specific. They want uh, very often they want uh, people with scientific molding experience and all that type of thing. Uh, and there's some very. I'll get a list of ten things the companies wants, and then I end up having to give them twelve. Uh, <laughs> it gets. It gets absurd sometimes, but uh, that's kind of the way it is right now. People know tens of marketing scheme. Yeah, it, it's very hard, very hard. That's one reason that, uh, to be honest, that in this era of uh, LinkedIn and uh, uh, Monster and Career Builder and all that, I can still make money because uh, unless you know what you're looking for. You can't just look at look at what a guy says he does on Monster if you don't know the processes and the companies and all that, and decide you know, hey, this guy's this guy's worth a shot. I need to call him. Mm-hmm. And there are people in HR uh, working for companies, usually their own recruiters. They they don't know enough to know what questions to ask. Usually, they just go by whatever list. Uh, 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 buzzwords <laughs> uh, engineering manager gave them yeah uh, uh, and uh, very often that's just not enough because you just don't have that feel you need right you had, you had mentioned that the uh, the cost of equipment wasn't coming down but isn't the uh, the productivity of most of these machines going uh, up as we go along in time way up uh Productivity is going way up on the machines, both productivity and quality of product. Robotics are an obvious help. Uh, used to be robotics were a, almost always a, an add-on uh, aftermarket 
thought, mm-hmm. which required actually there were a lot of robotics engineers one at one time going around doing nothing but robotics, putting robotics on on the presses and things. It was a very lucrative thing to be doing. But mm-hmm. as, as all things happen, the most of the builders of the uh, presses and things uh, got injection molding presses got smart, and they said, "Okay, we'll put we'll buy these robotic companies." So most of them have been purchased, and like and uh, and we'll put uh, put their robots on our machines and sell the sell the machines and get a little bit extra money there, right? Uh, which was which is a good deal. One one area that's gotten uh, that's gone. I don't want to say crazy, but back and I I know Jeff Jeff knows my story on this. But I was working with uh, when I built wire and cable. We were working with Wonderware and trying to upgrade all of our molding machines and put on uh, better electronic interfaces, which you know got touched and which the operator could touch and could run two machines and it worked pretty well. But now, uh, not only, not only have those interfaces come and, and they're, uh, they come on the machine. You're not, uh, again, not doing an aftermarket installation anymore. Uh, you've got machines where they, uh, just like using, uh, Windows 8.1, you just go up and you touch yeah, I, I want I want a little more flow here, so you touch it once, and you get a little more flow, um, or you get a little more heat, or you get a little more of this or that, so you can just tweak your machine very easily. But even to the point now, a lot of the machines uh, are being run by a handheld interface, uh, and an operator can walk from machine to machine to machine, or just stand there. He can do a machine. Two uh, two rows over and run four or five machines now. Whereas before, if you could run two machines, that was one time you ran one machine. Then operators starting to be able to run two machines. Now they can run five machines. Great. Right. Um, I know there's a company now in an X which is has the ability to they make uh, plastic pipe, big diameter stuff. They right. can actually change the diameter of the plastic pipe on the fly and never have to do a changeover, which used to be a lot of those changeovers would take two or three days. Now wow. they can do it. They can do it in a half hour to an hour. Was there a lot of Another huge cleaning thing. of nozzles involved? Is that why it took so long? Uh, no, it was just to really, it was just changing the dyes and, and cleaning, uh, and, and you had to clean the machine out. In order to change the dies, because you couldn't leave the plastic to set up in there, so you did have to run out all the plastic that was in the machine. So obviously, there was a lot of waste there too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and so now you can just you just re basically you just readjust the machine on the screen, and out comes your new pipe. Yeah, you throw away a little bit of pipe, but nothing like what you used to. Just unbelievable, and it can be recycled. Usually the the pipes are PVC and they're they're very recyclable. So perfect. And then go ahead. Oh, I just said perfect. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Huskies come out with recently just announced they've come out with self cleaning molds, and that's an area that just huge savings there because after so long, you do get build up in molds. You get dirt, dust. You get uh, a lot of things. 
and you had to take the molds out, even clean them. And, it, and that cleaning was not easy. You usually had to put them in an oven, heat them up, scrape like crazy. Then you had to go in and uh, use uh, polish, polish them all up again. Huge, huge downtimes uh, and a lot of labor. Very labor intensive. I can't even begin to tell how labor intensive it is. I've placed a lot of those people that do that job too. Not a real popular job either, by the way. Um, but anyway, um, but Huskies now come out with that. That's going to save a huge time, huge amount of time. Uh, thermal forming capabilities. Just, it's unbelievable in the last 10 years what thermoforming machines can do compared to what they used to do. Used to be about the only thing you saw them make was these little toy cars and stuff that uh, covers for the radio control cars, stuff mm-hmm. like that, or or uh, uh, packaging, uh, clear packaging that products came in. But now they can do some just tremendous things with that. And with the use of five-axis CNC machines, which I place a lot of those people that can run those and set them up uh they can they can do a lot after machining on them and make some very good products um clear cans uh that's something that's going to hit the market and i think it's going to really be a big uh big thing so what is what is a clear can is that like transparent aluminum? transparent you can see what you can see your <laughs> beans inside the can <laughs> i enjoy the star trek reference yeah, <laughs> hello computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of. But why? Why do we need clear uh, cans? Don't we have glass? We do, but glass is heavy, still heavy and expensive. So, hmm. um, so the people buy them. Uh, they would rather have the reduced weight, and uh, that's why you see so many plastic bottles down with the. Uh, foil, and actually, I worked on the develop that helped develop machines in Canada that put that foil on top to seal them. You take the top off of your, uh, oh, say your uh, coffee mate or coffee creamer that you put in, and, and then you put the lid back on, and you you that put that back in your refrigerator and use your coffee mate for a few weeks or whatever okay. the creamer is. So. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be a big one. Uh, and again, 3D printing, prototype parts, uh, stasis, Connex, uh, they combine Connex and stasis. And they're obviously, they're the 300-pound uh, or 500-pound gorilla in that business. But so many people now are buying their machines, setting them up, and then renting out uh, time on them. And that's that's allowed people to make a lot of things they couldn't make before. I know these little, these little printers you can buy from almost anybody now are kind of cute. You know, you can make your own version of, uh, of a dinosaur or something. Uh, but, but still those are not, not that useful for industrial work, but the other ones are. So, and we're seeing more uh, molding coming back to the U S because, uh, People have found, you know, they're having problems in China, and then China's sourcing out to Vietnam, and Vietnam's sourcing out to Cambodia. Where does it end? When somebody screws your part up, who do you go to? Uh, Not easy. 
so the, there's just a increased productivity just by the uh, reduced uh, turnaround time and delay in trying to sort out these problems? Definitely, yes. Okay. Yeah, a lot of money be made. I know when I was in China at one point, there, you know, uh, we we and the Japanese were really into the quality thing, quality idea. The Chinese had a whole different uh, idea. They were making, uh, I remember it, going into a t-shirt factory and they were making these t-shirt bags that, you know, everybody packs their t-shirts in. And what they were doing is they just kind of set their machines up to run as good as they could set them up easily. And then they put 50 people at the end of the table inspecting them. And you had your number one t-shirt bags, which went to whoever the prime customer was. And then they sold all the other t-shirt bags as seconds. No big deal. (laughs) You did. You didn't spend the time and the money the Japanese were spending uh, on uh, on quality control, so it, or us. But I wouldn't discount the the Chinese effort to improve their quality in the same way that that in the '60s Japanese products were seen as inferior. That didn't last for very long. Well, the Japanese were, or the Chinese are very smart in the way that they attack a lot of things. They bought the best of the best when it came to the the uh, the significant equipment, but mm-hmm. uh, anything that could be done by hand, they went ahead and did. Uh, uh, they went ahead and just used manual labor. So, okay. but but if they they bought the best molding presses you could buy, they bought the best uh, separators. They, you know, the best robots. They bought the best for everything. If they needed it, they paid the money, which okay. was actually an advantage they had over us because we have all this old injection molding equipment sitting around and uh, it's tough to make it run good, but yet it's very hard to replace. Right. Very expensive to replace. So, okay. So, so with all this uh, increased productivity, is there any downside to all this? Well, there's always downside. A lot of jobs are being lost even here in the United States. I think there's 39,800 operators or something like that running injection molding machines today, just injection molding machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and by 2020, it's predicted because of all the automation that's taking place and the new machines that are being bought and the old machines are being replaced, 11,000 of those jobs are going away. Now, that doesn't mean that that's uh, 11,000 operators going to be unemployed because the majority of operators right now, I'd say, are in their 40s and 50s, some of them even in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So they're basically, they're just, it's going to go through attrition more than anything else. We won't see it. But what, but actually we'll, but we'll see the, uh, I just did a quick calculation. That'd be about a 400, $444 million impact on the U.S. economy because most of those people make 40000 at least just as operators. Okay. And if you look at the triple-down effect, which I think probably all of us have MBAs, uh, that, <laughs> would put it, that would put it over uh, several billion dollars on the economy. So, the, uh, so the, uh, of course, the, the benefit, one would say, though, is that uh, we as consumers are getting cheaper products. That would be a benefit, yes. Getting cheaper products, and for the most part, better products. It's not like, I, I think, you know, let's face it, at one time, if you 
I remember in the fifties or sixties, you got a plastic part. You, you didn't expect it to last more than a few days or a plastic toy. Uh, but now you, you expect it to last at least for a while, uh, for years or a few years. Uh, it, it, uh, it's quite different than it used to be. You expect your car to last for seven years and most of the parts in that are plastic or not most of them, 40% plastics now. Okay. So it's a huge part of it. And, uh, plastics, the, uh, yeah, it's just, it's gotten very good in that respect. Neat. Well, guys, we're getting uh, close to the end. I'm going to uh, wrap this up before too long. Are there any other questions you wanted to ask Jim before we, uh, we bring the episode to a conclusion? Mm, nothing I can think of. I think we've been pretty thorough so far. I'm good. A lot of good stories. Okay. Yeah. Well, one, one area I just thought I'd touch on since there are engineers here and electric, I know electrical engineers, uh, one, one downside to what's happened is most of the building or design and building of, uh, presses, injection molding presses have gone outside the U.S., uh, Japan, Germany, uh, Austria are some of the big players, um, very big players. It probably won't be long till China's a big player too. And, uh, it's just, uh, so they're they're the they're the economies that are using the electrical engineers and the mechanical engineers to design machines. Although I have seen a resurgence of sorts since Nanomillicron's gone from about twenty twenty five hundred employees or twenty eight hundred employees in two thousand twelve when they were going coming out of a bankruptcy for probably the fifth time, mm-hmm. um, and they've got about five thousand employees now. And a huge part of that is technical. So there are uh, machine building or designing opportunities there and control opportunities. But, uh, but again, we, we, we've kind of lost, we've kind of given that up. It's kind of a sad thing, but Hey, who am I? Right. Well, if, uh, that being the case, is uh, was Mr. McGuire right? Is there still a future in plastics? Oh, definitely, definitely uh, a big, big future in plastics, and I think it's only going to get bigger because they're just uh, how do I want to put it? Well, most uh, people in the U.S. don't want to do manufacturing, and it's uh, boiling down to the old uh, curve. Uh, Demand and supply. Supply, yeah, it's the old supply and demand curve, and demand's going up, and there's not enough supply right now, and no, very few people are going into it. And the people that uh, have uh, really know about plastics and understand it as best as anybody does are are reaching retirement. Uh, I'm still placing guys that are seventy years old. Wow. Um, so. And and to place somebody in my, in this in their sixties is not uncommon anymore. So it's uh, and it just can't. It's not only going to last so long. I mean, I'm sixty seven. I I I don't want to be on a factory floor putting molds in a press. I, I know that. I don't. I don't think I could do it for over a couple hours, but anymore. But uh, but there are people that are almost that old doing it. So. 
Yeah. It's, it's, uh, we need people. We need people. So yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's only going to get better. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, Jim, we really appreciate your coming and joining us and, and uh, giving us some information about the world of plastics. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, before we let you go this evening, is there uh, any advice you have for our listeners? You've, you've had an experience as a, uh, an engineer, as an engineering manager, and in, uh, so you've sort of been exposed to the entire realm of the engineering field. Well, I, went, I, I decided in fourth grade after reading a science fiction book, that was a lot of years ago. There weren't even many science fiction books out then. <laughs> but uh, I decided I wanted to be an engineer, and I went into engineering, and at first it didn't look like it was going to be a huge paying thing, but I made a pretty good uh, living out of uh, engineering, and I, mm -hmm. I actually loved it. Uh, so I guess my advice is, uh, you know, find – and I'm t that's why I tell my kids I've got – I've got one daughter that's uh, just graduated with a pharmacy degree, a doctor in pharmacy. I've got another daughter that's working on her doctorate in biology, plant biology. Another one that's working on her doctorate or master's or doctorate. I don't know. I remember one or the other. <laughs> and uh, but she's working it on uh, on helping people in uh, uh, that have uh, physical problems. Mm -hmm. And then I've got a son who's getting a degree in business, kind of the black sheep of the group. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and uh, so, but what do I tell them? You know, find out, find what you love and uh, the money will follow. Just do do what you love and you, you'll make a very good living at it, whatever it is. So, Fantastic. Jim, thank you again for uh, joining us and, and sharing your information and uh bring our listeners up to date. Uh, if they want to get a hold of you, if they like what you have to say, or they, they want to apply for one of these jobs, uh, how do we tell them to get a hold of you? Well, the easiest way is to just send me an email at uh, discover at frontiernet.net. Uh, one big, two big words, or they can contact me at uh, Jim at discovery personnel, two big words, dot com. Either way, and and we have a website uh, www.discoverypersonnel.com. So okay, and that's that's the name of your firm, Discovery Personnel. The name of the firm, yes, correct. Fantastic, cool. We'll wait till all that in the show notes. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, yeah, like Jeff said, thanks again. It's been a really been a pleasure. Well, I've enjoyed it, so I, I appreciate uh, getting a chance to return for my third. Uh, <laughs> my third opportunity. <laughs> I hope I get a fourth someday. Three, three episodes, one. three different topics. I mean, you're our first triathlon too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I feel like I've run one tonight too, but that's beside the point. <laughs> so I'm coming off a cold, so my, my voice is a little bit rough. You did great. Thank you. All right. Have a good evening. You too. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, Jim. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.